please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. For those of you that are using those black Bibles in the seats in front of you, Matthew chapter 13 can be found on page 819 in the black Bibles. Before I read the text of Scripture to which the comments I will give you for this message, I want to share with you an email that I received. I was thinking it's probably an unusual email for you all, but as my profession is to do church work, this isn't as unusual. But this is the email that came in this week from a friend of mine who's serving as a pastor The location of where he's serving is a bit dangerous for him to be a Christian and for the people to which I'll be speaking of, so therefore I will leave his identity and where he's at anonymous. He says this, I'd appreciate your prayers if you would think about us and the baptisms that we have coming up this week. Here's who's getting baptized. An Indian brother who comes from a Hindu background, an Iranian sister from a Muslim background, a Kurdish-Iranian brother from a Muslim background, an Iraqi Kurdish from the Kakai tribe, which is an unreached tribal group, which is another part of a Muslim background, and finally, an Iraqi Arab from a Muslim background. That list was encouraging for me to read. That was exciting to see that somebody's doing ministry in a context that's reaching people from all over and sharing the good news of Jesus. But then there's the sobering words that he shares next. Two of the Muslim men are currently under real death threats from their family. The Kakai brother has been threatened this last month by his uncle with a gun to his head. The woman that I mentioned is married to a man who now seems like he's soft to the gospel message. All of these baptisms baptizes, um, those getting baptized, are all aware the commitment that they are making. Taking this covenant is serious, but they all see that the church is their new family. For some of you, this might be an email that you think, praise God, that's encouraging. Wow, it's exciting to see what God's doing around the world. For others of you, you might be wondering, Why? Why is that good news? Why would these individuals and people in the United States of America rejoice at the thought of dividing family members, death threats, and people putting their lives on the line to get baptized in water in the name of Jesus? Does that make any sense? My hope and prayer is that as we work through our text of Scripture today and listen to the teachings of Jesus, it will at least make some sense in terms of what Jesus has said. So follow along with me in Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read starting in verse 44, and we're going to read down to verse 50. We're going to look at three parables. Starting in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, 
who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hopefully you see that there is a link between all three of these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then it says it a third time in verse 47. Therefore, we want to think about what each of these parables are saying. And so therefore, in the back, the screen behind me, the kingdom of heaven is like what? First, we see that it begins with selling. Second, it puts an end to our searching. And third, it results in separating. Selling, searching, and separating, I think, are our three key words for each of these parables. The phrase kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the phrase that some of you might have heard or read in other parts of the Bible, the kingdom of God. Matthew is a Jewish author writing about the kingdom of God, but Jewish people are very sacred toward the name of God, so therefore they never want to say God or anything associated with it. They say things that are like God, so instead of saying kingdom of God, they say kingdom of heaven, for example, and that's synonymous then with kingdom of God. The phrase kingdom means the rule or reign of something. So when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the rule or reign of God through the person of Jesus. So where are people bowing before, worshiping, adoring, and obeying King Jesus? Wherever you see that happening, you're seeing the reign and the rule of God on the earth. There are places in people's hearts or in communities or in churches where the kingdom does not reign and rule, where other kingdoms, other value systems, other masters rule. And so what we're hearing from Jesus is how he's going to describe what the reign and the rule of Jesus looks like. And so first, let's begin with the first description from the first parable. It's just one simple, short verse, verse 44 the kingdom of heaven, it begins with selling. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In fact, both of the first two parables here that we've read include this phrase, goes and sells all that he had and then buys whatever it was, the pearl in the one story, and the field in the other. Notice in our text, the key phrase, in his joy. Maybe the most important phrase of this verse, in verse 44. He found a treasure hidden in a field. He covered it up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Buying the field means that he did not own the field. It's it's a parable. It's not a real, true, historical story. 
This is Jesus giving an illustration that has a riddle toward it. The point of the riddle is the great value of the kingdom. There's a treasure that someone has in their property, but they don't know about it. It's hidden. There's a treasure that some people don't know about. It's hidden to them. Some people stumble across that treasure, and in this case, a man stumbles across this treasure. Why did he stumble across it? Who knows? Could he have been searching for it? It's not clear. Could he have been treasure hunting? Possibly. Really? Really? People just go around and treasure hunt in Jesus' day? Actually, yeah, they did. They didn't have banks. If you had a lot of money and there was going to be some invading army that was going to come in and you wanted to make sure they were going to raid your house and not steal all of your precious goods, you might go out and hide it somewhere and make sure that no one could find it very easily and you might put a little treasure map. About 50, 60 years ago, there was a whole bunch of archaeological digs that were found in what are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And amongst those scrolls, ancient documents uncovered a whole bunch of treasure maps where people who didn't have banks hid their most precious valuables. So yes, this is not actually a weird story in Jesus' day. People would have been hunting for or searching for treasures from time to time. We don't know how much this man was searching. He could have just been working in a field and a farmer of a man who owns a field. All of those details are not really what's, I think, important. What seems to be important is I think what Jesus is doing is telling the nation of Israel, the Jewish people of his day, that you have a treasure in your land, but many of you are going to sell your land and miss out on that treasure that's right in front of you. It's an indictment, and it's a description of the joy of those who do find that treasure. It plays both. So then, the question for all of us, who are you? Are you the person that's willing to sell your field because you have no idea what's right in front of you? Are any of you going to walk out from church today and say, yeah, don't care about church anymore, I'm done. Bible, Jesus, it's not valuable to me. No need to invest any time, money, energy, resources. That's not a valuable treasure. Sure, sell the field. Or... Are you going to be like the man who's willing to give up everything in his joy because he has found something supremely valuable? That it is a happy trade-off. He is happy to give up everything that he owns in order to get this field because he knows what he found. Jesus indicates that the proper response to the kingdom message is to throw off everything. And go get the treasure. It is so infinitely valuable that you should trade everything for it. Does that sound too radical for some of you? Well, listen to this description from Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, you have a man who had everything going for him. He would have been at the elite school He would have been the top of his class. He would have been the super rising star amongst the educational elite. This man had the best resume you and I would dream of. And listen to how he describes that resume in comparison to the treasure that is Jesus. This is Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 7 to 9. The man's name is Paul. 
He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word, by the way, rubbish, is very softly translated. It would translate best with some sort of curse word in our day if you could fill in the blank. I count them as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's going to use some of the strongest language of his day to say that it is trash. It is a pile of manure. All that I had, all of my successes, accolades, and resume is manure compared to knowing Jesus Christ. The word knowing there is not knowledge of Jesus Christ. It means I know him like I know my wife, like I know my family members. We are close and intimate. The knowledge of the intimate relationship of knowing Jesus is surpassing worth that I can look back at everything that I've accomplished in my life and say, it's trash. This is what the kingdom is like. It begins. In fact, you may not have the kingdom unless you have not first sold everything. This is true for every single person who wants to follow Jesus, wants to really take him up for what he is offering. You have to sell. Drop your projects, drop your plans, drop your purposes. Reorient everything in your life so that you then are seeking the kingdom above all else. Have you grasped that? Have you wrestled with this? Does this sound like just crazy religious talk, or does this sound like it makes sense that if the kingdom of God is actually as good as what God has said it is, and the promises pay out far better than any of us could ever dream, then radically changing what we do now with our temporary, earthly, fleeting pleasures and prosperity, it makes sense. It's a good, happy trade-off. It makes sense to lose family members when you get baptized if you know you're going to gain an eternal, infinite family that is going to last forever. It makes sense. That's why you'd get baptized, knowing that somebody might put a gun to your head. Okay, shoot me and die. I will live in all of eternity with a greater family that doesn't shoot people in the head. A.W. Tozer was a pastor in the Chicago area for quite a while. He's gone on and passed. He's written several different books. And there's a quotation that has really gripped my mind in terms of what it means to become a Christian, to begin following Jesus. He explains that in the past, there used to be a way of talking about Christianity, but now it's changed. And this is him talking a few decades ago, and I think the words are still as relevant today as they were then. Here they are. A.W. Tozer says, Almost undetected, there has come in our modern time a new gospel message, a new cross into the popular Christian circles. It's kind of like the old cross of Jesus, but this cross is different. The likenesses, though, are just superficial. 
The differences are fundamental. See, this new cross of Christianity uses the same language of the old Christianity, but its content is not the same as its emphasis. The cross of this new kind of Christianity does not slay the sinner. It just redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner, jollier way of living to help save him and his self-respect. Therefore, the new message says, to those who are self-assertive, come, assert yourself for Jesus. To those who are thrill-seekers, it says, come, enjoy the thrills of the Christian life. You see, the idea behind this kind of thing could be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It misses completely the whole meaning of Jesus' cross. The cross is not a symbol of life. It is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a person's life. God salvages the individual by first liquidating him and then raising him again to a new life. Or as Jesus said, the corn of a wheat must fall into the ground and then die. Only then, God will give it new life. And it will not be just an improved old life. Who would possess that Who can this theology be translated into life for? The non-Christian must repent and believe. He must forsake his sins and then go on to forsake his own life. Let him cover nothing, defend nothing, excuse nothing. Let him not seek to make terms with God, but let him bow his head before the stroke of God's displeasure and acknowledge himself worthy to die. End quote of A.W. Tozer. Now, that was a long quote, and in case you lost the point along the way. The cross of Jesus calls you to first come and die. Sell everything. Die to yourself. Die to your will. Die to your plans and your projects. The message of Christianity is not, you've got a plan. You're headed down a certain way. Oh, you're struggling a little bit. Jesus will help you get there a little bit better. That is false Christianity. True Christianity is the cross is about dying to all of your plans and getting new ones because they're so much better than your old plans. I was meeting with one of our church attenders yesterday and I was reminded of this point and it's, it's a silly point, but in the movie that was the redone Rapunzel called Tangled, there's a scene where Rapunzel's with a bunch of thugs and mean guys And she shares her dreams and all of the great things she wants to do. And they're like, wow, your dreams are great. And then the guy that Rapunzel's with, her eventual boyfriend and husband, he shares his dreams. And they all just go, your dreams stink. You need to get new dreams. All these big, rough, tough guys. And that's kind of what gets stuck in my head when I'm thinking about the call to sell everything that you have. Jesus is essentially lovingly, but bluntly saying, your dreams stink. Get new dreams. Get a new life. The old life is not just going to be improved by adding Jesus to it. You need to drop it all. So think about this image of the treasure and look at it from a different angle. Repentance and faith that I just read to you about from A.W. Tozer. This is the core of beginning into the Christian life. It means to turn from and embrace something else. Turn from your former path, your former way of doing and thinking and living, and embrace a new way of thinking and living. 
So I want you to imagine that I'm holding in my hands in a dark room a bunch of rocks, worthless, meaningless rocks, but because of the darkness, I'm deceived. I don't know that they're meaningless and worthless. Somebody told me I was holding jewels, valuable jewels, and I hold on to them tightly. And then one day, the lights come on, and I realize that I'm holding rocks in my hand. It's just a bunch of gravel and dirt and dust. And then I see before me diamonds, real jewels. Repentance is the act of saying, instead of going like this, well, I'll hold on to some of these, and let me scoop up some of the diamonds, and I'll hold on to both. It's the, what is this? Get rid of the rocks. Oh, diamonds. That is what we're talking about in this parable. Dropping all and embracing the treasure that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is letting go and selling all that you have. Pick up the diamonds. Pick up the treasure. It is worth it. It may not seem to you as worth it. And this is why it's so essential that church is about community. This is not just an idea that you need to take at its value for me just saying it, like, okay, well, that makes sense. But rather, this is a community of people that have embodied and lived out that, in fact, this is true. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're new to church or this is a new thing for you, the best thing you could do is have somebody that's going to help you and say, I have seen this to play out true over and over again in my life. The more that I die to myself and the more that I let God raise me up again and the more I die to my old dreams and I get the new dreams from Jesus the more I find that it is infinitely more valuable and I was a fool and now I'm learning the wisdom of God. In both of these parables, these men on the surface seem to act irrationally. I think we need to do serious business with that reality. The man sells all that he has and he gets a pearl. To do what with it? Sell it? To just have it because it's just that great to him. On the surface, right? It just doesn't make any sense. A man has been searching and wanting pearls his whole life, and he finally found the one pearl, and he sells everything that he has, because this one pearl is worth everything that he could possibly have been working for for his entire life. You've got to imagine his friends and family talking to him, be like, what are you doing? What are they going to do about their future? Their retirement plans, saving for their kids' college education. This is not responsible. You need to support a family. This is not wise. You're acting too rashly. But my friends, this is what the kingdom does. It flips your world upside down that to everybody else, it seems as if you're acting like a complete fool. The kingdom is such surpassing value that it overturns all economic calculations prior to arriving at the treasure of Jesus. It shatters your world. It shatters your expectations. Your whole idea of the future gets completely flipped on its head. If you knew that one of your very, very, very wealthy family members was going to die and pass on to you an inheritance that was so great that you would never have to worry about money or bills or how to take care of anybody for the rest of your life, how might you live in the in-between time from now to knowing that that inheritance, you're in the will, it's sealed, it's done, and then the time 
of that family member passing away? Would you really worry and fret? Or would you think, I mean, it could go good or bad, but eventually an inheritance is coming. This is what the kingdom does. It tells you to sell all because it is worthy. It is worthwhile. Jesus gave up everything for you. He sold everything that he had in heaven because of the surpassing value he placed on gaining each one of us on earth. This is what gospel-centered thinking does. That's what it looks like. Are you willing to sell everything? For some of you that have already said, yeah, I've already done that. I've been baptized and join a church. And that baptism, the moving somebody from down into the water, that is death to my old self. And then I'm alive with new goals and dreams and visions and values based on the kingdom of heaven. If you've been baptized, then you're saying, I did die and now I'm a new person. Essentially, you're saying, I was willing to sell everything, but are you reaffirming that on a regular basis? Don't we need to be reminded because sometimes the messages of the world are coming in steadily and they're deceiving and tricking us to think, um, maybe the kingdom's not that valuable. One of my favorite stories of real life kingdom selling is a guy named C.T. Studd. For those of you who've been around church at Embassy, you've heard me mention him. He's got one of the coolest names, right? C.T. Studd was a stud cricket player. Cricket is a game that people don't play here really in the United States, but it's similar to baseball, sort of. But he was the best player, and he was living in England at the time, and the best comparison is to just think whatever sports star any of you might know, whether it's LeBron James or Steph Curry in basketball or some great baseball player like Mike Trout or somebody that you just think, oh, yeah, this guy is the best of the best in his sport. That was C.T. Studd with cricket. Championship player, multi-million dollar kind of earnings, just he had it going on. He became a Christian and he sold it all. He became a missionary and did all that he could to help spread the gospel all over the world. Why? Why would you do that? He said this was the reason. If Jesus Christ is God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Let me say that one more time because this is a nice little gem of a treasure for you to take home, think about, meditate. If Jesus Christ is God and he died for me, then there will be no sacrifice too great for me to make for him. In fact, it might seem laughable to call it a sacrifice. The man is not sacrificing when he's selling everything that he has. He says in his joy and in his excitement, he's going to do whatever he can to get the treasure in the field. That's gospel-centered living. If that's what God did for me, then what is selling all that I have? What's dying to myself? That's how the gospel changes the heart, changes the desires, gives you new joy. And so make, it, make sure that it's clear to all of us in the room, whether you're a new Christian, not a Christian, or been a Christian forever. Hopefully we can be unified around this clear teaching of Jesus. Christianity should be motivated by joy. Spirit-wrought joy. 
Not just duty. Well, I got to go sell the field. That's not how the text reads, does it? Does it make sense of the story? It's he found something of infinite worth. Does this describe you, my friend? Have you found that there is a treasure right in front of you? It is Jesus the Christ. He has come and he has given his life for us. He has died. He has established a kingdom here on this earth. And his ways are good. His commands are amazing. We should listen to him. Follow him. It will be the best thing you've ever done. And it will be the best thing you continue to do every day and every week of your life for those of you that already call yourself followers. So the first thing, and maybe the most important of our text for today's message is it begins with selling. Second, in the parable of the pearl of great value, it tells us that our search ends. It ends our searching. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Here you have a businessman who's trying to find some great pearls. They would have been very rare for him to find during that day. Remember, they don't have scuba gear and different deep dive technologies that we do, so it's only when they can go down far enough when the water's shallow. And so this man comes across some sort of great pearl of infinite value to him, so he sells all that he has and he buys it. What's different between the first story and the second story is it's very clear that the pearl merchant is searching. He is longing. He is looking. He is spending his life looking for good pearls. We don't really know if the man in the first story actually was looking for treasures or not. It just says he found a treasure. So in the second story, it makes it clear that there is a search. There is something to be found. And there is only one infinite value pearl. This word for costly of great value that you see in verse 46, it's the one that's used to talk about the perfume. For any of you that are familiar with the stories of Jesus, and there's a woman that's got this very expensive bottle of perfume. It's like a year or two or more worth of work. So imagine taking your entire year's salary and purchasing one thing with that one year of salary. That's the language used of the costly perfume that this woman broke and then used the perfume to then spread it all over the feet of Jesus. That's what this pearl is like. It's like spending everything that you've got, all of your salary for the last few years, or as this man, everything that he has. Every last dime, every little treasure that he hid in the fields, every dollar underneath of his mattress, he sold it all, and he bought this pearl. This means that the kingdom is something that we've always been looking for. And many of you, you may not even realize that's what you're looking for. There's a search. You're searching for something. And you're trying to find it in that next thing. Has it really satisfied? Or does it lead you to want more? As the famous quote from the richest man in the world, most estimates say because of inflation, he puts Bill Gates to shame. Rockefeller, who lived in New York, when they asked him, how much is enough money? One more dollar will be enough. Meaning it's never enough. Even if you're the richest person that's ever lived in the United States of America, there's never enough. We're all searching. 
And it could be a variety of things. It could be popularity. It could be fame. It could be finances. The thing that all of us are searching for deep down in our hearts can only be found by the treasure that is the infinite pearl of great price, Jesus, the kingdom of heaven. A Christian a few hundred years after Jesus, his name is St. Augustine, and he was in Africa when he came to faith in Jesus, and he said this very memorable, famous quotation. He says, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are a constant search for meaning and purpose and value, and they're restless until eventually you stumble across that one pearl, like this man did. And there's only one. There's not a bunch of different pearls. This man's done searching for pearls. He found the very one. And this is the one that not only we're all looking for, it's the one that all other religions are trying to point to. This is the exclusive truth claim that it is only Christ. He's not just a treasure. Oh, he's a really good treasure. But you know, there's other good treasures too. Buddha was a good treasure. He taught us some good things. No. No, Buddha's not a treasure. I'm not saying that everything about him is hogwash. Buddha's awful. I'm telling you that Jesus is the treasure. Buddha was a man who taught some things that became Buddhism. Jesus became the religion. He is God in the human flesh. He died for you. Buddha can't say that. Muhammad can't say that. There is one pearl of infinite value. It is the man, Jesus Christ, who gave of himself for us. Compare that with every other pearl out there. They won't even look like a pearl. It'll be like a rock of gravel in my hand. And you say, I'm done with these. The pearl, please. So, friend, what are you seeking? What are you searching for? Have you let the Spirit of God allow space in your mind and heart for you to really let that sink in? Why am I running like crazy after, and then you fill in the blank. Why am I putting all this money and time and energy into this? Why am I so stressed out about? You're searching. This is the way our hearts were very wired and made. So therefore, I can just assume that all of us in this room were default manner is that we're going to search for something. And until our hearts can latch onto something, we're going to keep searching. And for too many of us, we search and we latch on to something. We're like, oh, that, that wasn't it. Find this pearl of infinite value, and you will not need to look anymore. The message of Jesus is that the kingdom of heaven is in your grasp. It can be found. It is not elusive. It is not some dream, some utopian hope. Maybe one day we'll arrive. No, the kingdom has already come. It can be had now. Repent and believe. Sell all and cling to the treasure. That's our second point. Third and finally, the last parable is the parable of the net. The first two were obviously very similar and they go together as a couple. The last one, I think, parallels with something we looked at last week in the parable of the weed and wheats. But let's just briefly see one final thing. The kingdom of heaven results in separating. 
It says in verse 47 that the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This would be a very easy passage of Scripture for you and I to hear or read and for you to import a lot of different things toward what's going on here. And because the entire message is not going to unpack all of these details, here's one helpful way to think about what's going on. Have you ever listened to one side of a phone call? Or walked along the street and heard somebody having a conversation with someone and you heard something and it was kind of alarming, like, whoa, what's going on there? The other day, my wife walked into a bathroom and there was a kid that was like crying and screaming and then it was like, what was going on, you know? They're behind the stall and so we had this conversation about what happens and whatever else and it was just a reminder to me that there's oftentimes a bigger narrative and story going on and sometimes we kind of walk in halfway through the story or get a little, little sound bite. Now, what if you walk into the bathroom and you think, Oh man, a kid's screaming and crying? Could it be that the parents are like beating him in there? Oh no, like what if that's what you fill in the gaps with? Or what if they like made a big mess with themselves in the bathroom? And it, it was like they just need changed and they were all upset. I mean, they're, you don't know. You're on the other side of the door. The reason I say that is because at the end of our text, it says the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. My guess is that a lot of us, we stumble across that conversation that Jesus is having, and it's kind of like stumbling into that bathroom or hearing somebody on the other side of the phone call. And we're like, whoa, what was that? That sounds intense. Well, it is intense. But this is apocalyptic language, and there's a bigger conversation going on in the whole Bible. So the best way to describe this is to just simply say that Jesus is talking about the reality that his coming, Jesus' coming, is going to separate two kinds of people. That people will embrace him as the treasure, as that fine pearl, and others will not. And he's using language that's just chock full of Old Testament imagery, both of apocalyptic, which means like big end of the world. Now, that's the other little tidbit. When I say big end of the world apocalyptic, I don't mean the actual cosmos of like the heavens and the earth and the stars in the sky. I mean the more metaphorical phrases that are, the whole world is crumbling down when we don't mean like literally the moon is crashing into the earth, but rather have you ever had a moment in your life where, like, my whole world is crumbling before me? Well, in Jewish literature, it would have been common for them to use apocalyptic language, big cosmic-like language, to talk about the fall of the nation of Israel, or the fall of the Babylonian Empire, or the fall of some sort of kingdom. And so Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven is establishing a new kingdom on the earth now. Those who embrace it will be called righteous. Those who do not, their kingdoms will crash and burn and fall. And for many of the people hearing this, it would have been the Israelite kingdom, the Jewish worldview that they're thinking of. And Jesus' prophetic words that at the end of the age, everything will come crashing down, it did not take long for them to come true. This is not 
talking primarily, I don't believe, about the end of the world and hell and fire and brimstone. It is talking about the end of what seems like everything that matters to you. It's all coming crashing down. For these Jewish people, one of the symbols of what everything would have mattered and centered their lives around was the temple. And Jesus says that it will all come crashing and burning down and there will be angst and weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. And that's in fact what happened. Jesus dies, he rises again, his kingdom's established on the earth 30, 40 years later. The Roman Empire comes in and they just de- destroy and completely burn down the temple. And it's as if the whole Jewish world falls apart. And so when we read the Gospel of Matthew, this is a conversation that's been ongoing throughout Matthew's Gospel, and he is talking about a judgment, a fiery, blaming, blaming uh, blasting furnace that's going to happen in their lifetime. When we read later in Matthew chapter 25, you're going to say, this is coming in your lifetime, disciples. So if this is the end of the world judgment, then it's like, well, it didn't happen. The end of the world, we're all still alive. And so here's the point. This story of separation and this judgment that came on the Jewish people is a foreshadow of a bigger, wider judgment. And in that sense, we could say that he's talking about final separation and he's talking about what we might typically call heaven-hell. But first and foremost, I think he's talking about the story that's going on in his people and the kingdom that's happening right in front of them. This is why the phrase, so it will be at the end of the age. I mentioned this last week. It's worth repeating again. The end of the age is not the end of the world. That's not what that phrase means. That's going and listening to somebody on the phone, and you'll be like, oh, I heard one thing. Well, I'm going to go and conclude one story. There's a broader story. There's another side of the telephone. And when you listen to both sides, you realize that the Jewish worldview was there's this present age, and then there's the age to come. When Jesus comes, he says he is putting to end the present age And he is bringing the age to come now through his kingdom. The present age is ending, and so it will be at the end of the age. There will be this great judgment for those that don't embrace Jesus. So let me put this very practically. If people would have embraced the message of Jesus, they would not have fought back against the Romans and picked up swords and try and fight people with their hands. All those who did that died. They would not have done everything they can to say, let's try and preserve the temple and let's protect it and then get slaughtered by Romans to see the temple get burned down. Those that embraced the message of Jesus said, if you slap me, I'll turn the other cheek. If you ask me to carry your pack, Roman soldier, I'll go another mile. Those that really embraced the kingdom message of Jesus lived very differently and so were saved from these Roman destructions. Not completely, But this is a helpful way to read the ongoing conversation of what Jesus is talking about. So what does that mean for you and for me? It means that the kingdom of heaven is already here, as we mentioned in our second point. It's in, it's in our grasp. We can have it. And it means then that the age, the new age, has already dawned. Well, what's the new age? It's the new age of the Holy Spirit. It's the new age of God changing people's hearts and giving them great joy It's the new age of God writing his law on your heart, so no longer do we need to just have the Bible read to us and us keep failing to obey it, but rather we read the Bible and like we actually obey it by God's power and his strength. 
It's the new age that culminates with death and then resurrection. Just in the same way that Jesus died and then he rose again, so you too would be dying and then rising again. And that's the kingdom message. And it will separate all kinds. The dragnet is this net that goes between two boats, and then finally when it gets to the end, it comes out onto the shore. And there's all kinds of fish, and Jews were only allowed to eat certain fish, so they're going to separate some to the others. And Jesus says, my kingdom will separate. It will separate the good and the bad. You have to embrace me, and by embracing me, it will separate you. So this is why I read that email to you at the beginning of the service. These men and women in a church somewhere in another part of the world are getting baptized, and it's separating. It's causing division between family members. And it, many of these people, if they, if they live, they will be disowned and never see their friends or family members ever again. And the good news is that the kingdom of heaven is worth it. It's an eternal, infinite treasure. And God is asking you now to consider, do you see it that way? Do you have eyes to see? Are the eyes of your heart opened to see? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Christ, for him being an infinite, valuable treasure for the longing of our hearts that we've been searching for, we can put that searching and that quest to an end. We want to give you praise, God, for your kingdom. We want to pray, too, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on the earth as it is in heaven. We want to ask, God, that we'd be kingdom people and that we would so treasure it and value it more than anything else that the world has to offer. I pray that you would help open our eyes, that we would see how to live differently on the basis of these truths, that the message of Jesus' life for us, his selling everything in heaven to come be with us, it really would transform us. So God, do this work by the Spirit, a work that we can't do in and of ourselves. We need you, God. May this be another week for us to die and rise again in new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.